This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. You've got us now until midday. We're going to give you an hour of science. We've got three amazing guests coming into the studio. Actually, I should say three sets of guests. I think there's five in total, uh, three different topics. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Sorry, you're about to take a sip of your coffee there. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, in the way. it's the caffeine substance Melbourne loves. Yeah, I don't drink it anymore. Oh, really? I still smell it though. I'm still hooked on it. I just don't haven't drunk it in almost five years. You're on the coffee uh, wagon. You'll you'll see me. You know, I get a bit jittery at about eleven a.m. <laughs> anyway, it's all good. Doctor Ray, good morning. Morning, Doctor Shane. How are you going? Well, I uh, I made French toast for the family this morning, so I'm all energized, ready to go for French toast. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What? I'm just I'm just you know that's a pretty big effort. Yeah, well, it was my wife's birthday yesterday, so, you know, we're trying to do so a whole So why nice... didn't you make it yesterday? Well, because <laughs> yesterday we both agreed that sleeping in was a better option. You got to sleep in? I thought you had children. We do. Hmm, okay. Well, we'll leave that there. He, he slept in as well. It was, <laughs> he was, slept in yeah. as well? Yeah, well, anyway. Yesterday, I, I, something you guys will find funny, I've been tutoring my niece, which is, you know, basically we sacked her old tutor because she didn't know what she was doing. And, um, You're tutoring and her I in... in in mathematics. So yesterday, Thank you for clarifying the topic, yeah, Dr. Yeah. So yesterday, this is the part you love, she turns up with her genetics textbook, and I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't know squat about this subject. But for two and a half hours, I tutored her, and I have learned a lot more about genetics than I ever thought I would have before, so <laughs> I'm good to go. Fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into some news. Uh, Dr. Crystal, you're talking dinosaurs. I was reading um, an article this week that was published in current, the Journal of Current Biology, and I was addressing that question of, well, if the dinosaurs um, you know, experience this massive extinction event, yet birds are descended from dinosaurs, well, how have we still got birds? You know, how did they survive? Mm. Um, and it's uh, some research that was read by a t- uh, led by a team of paleontologists from Canada from the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum in Alberta and the University of Toronto with a whole bunch of friends from Ontario and elsewhere across the world because they looked at teeth. And it just, it's, it's always remarkable whenever these paleontology studies come out, there's so much data in teeth, you know, mm. whether they're looking at uh, early humans or whether they're looking at dinosaurs, there's so much that can be discovered. And I guess it's because also that teeth fossilise well. Yeah. Um, and so we have yeah. lots of them. And so this study um, was looking at the data from over 3,000 fossilised teeth. And they wanted to ask a very basic hypothesis at first and saying, well, um, it's because, you know, the extinction event uh, that led to the decline of dinosaurs is still still quite controversial. And so they thought, well, to start with, let's examine your hypothesis. Well, did they, uh, did, did the teeth that belong to these um, flying uh, family of dinosaurs, uh, did they decay over time or was there sort of a sudden event? And so they looked at the teeth and the way they measured this was to look at the diversity um, in the different fossils that they found. And they, and they hypothesised that if there was a decrease in the diversity, the types of teeth, you know, implying there was a decrease in the types of dinosaurs, that that would indicate that there was, um, the ecosystem was in decline over time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if there was diversity in the teeth was, was maintained, that you would have this rich um, and stable ecosystem and that there would have to be some sudden event to indicate that there was a, a species mass mm. extinction event. And, of course, they found the latter, um, which, you know, it just goes to reinforce all everything we know about... Um, 
about why there was this sudden loss of of, um, of the dinosaurs at that time. And so then they thought, well, okay, if there's this great big loss um, at a sudden time, well, well, how is it that we still got modern day birds? And they decided to look at dietary relationships. And, and, and of course, at the time, they look at all these teeth and they think, well, there's some carnivorous, there's some omnivores, there's you know clearly some anatomical features that indicate these must be insect eaters. But some of them had these kind of keratin type structures around their facial features. And you think, well, keratin, that's the kind of thing that uh, hair and nails and beaks are made of. Mm. And then they started to think that the last common ancestor of birds was actually this toothless seed eater with a beak, which makes so much sense because if you think about the environmental conditions at a catastrophic sort of meteor event that may have led to extinction, you know, there'd be decreased sunlight, decreased leaf and fruit, which means that, you know, there'd be no herbivores, which means there'd be no carnivores who fed off the herbivores. And so you can imagine this food chain um, collapse. But seeds are an important part of nutrition that can survive for you know decades you know a, a forest of seeds can you know keep for you know centuries mm. and so um they must be an important source of food which is why those early beaked uh bird-like dinosaurs are able to survive and become birds and it all makes sense when you read it like that but to think that there's a strong <laughs> evidence base behind it through mm. this study of over three thousand teeth i'm just imagining these paleontologists individually at the microscope one by one going through and measuring all the grooves and the sizes of all the incredible data set um to to really demonstrate that that it was the fact that, you know, these dinosaurs could eat seeds that means we've got lovely birds today. Mm. Yeah, very lovely birds. I have to say, whenever I think about the dinosaurs, it makes me kind of sad. I mean, these were just the most amazing, extraordinary creatures, and to not ever see one, you know, is just it's sad. It's sad. They're it, all gone. I think it also highlights the importance of biodiversity. Yeah, like, the only yeah. reason why we've got birds today is because there was such a diversity mm. of, of um, species at that time, and such that when there was some kind of catastrophic event there was one type that was suited to survive in the new environment and i think what we're seeing today broadly is a lack of biodiversity in the world across different kinds of species and i think that really speaks um to our future and what our resilience will be as a planet if we um, don't maintain our biodiversity mm. or certainly our diversity at the moment's been set up for conditions that aren't the ones we're moving into so whatever the diversity level is it will be problematic as we move into these conditions that are going to be very different. So that's where you lose your biodiversity. So, Dr. Ray? When it, when it gets warmer, sea level gets a bit taller, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, Dr. Shane, um, I, uh, I'm talking about sleep today. Okay. And uh, something that a recent study in how people sleep, which is actually su- rather surprising. Have you ever gone... If you're, you notice you're at a hotel for the first night on a conference trip or, or for work and you're sleeping someplace you normally don't, you actually find that first night you actually wake up a bit easier, that you, you get startled, you might not sleep as well, mm. oh, noises will wake you up. Like the first time, like when you move house. Exactly. Um, and that's actually called first night effect. And, 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 and it's been known about for a long time in sleep studies. When you go for, if you've ever had problems sleeping, you've had to go to a sleep study or you're getting checked for sleep apnea. The first night you go, they actually disregard that night's sleep pattern oh, really? just so you can get, because they're like, oh, you wake up too easy from other things because it's yeah. your first night. They don't even start looking at you till the second night. So the first night is like this, this, this acclimation period. And so people have known about this for a long time, but there's a set of researchers at Brown University that said, well, what exactly is going on in the brain when this happens? And as it turns out, when, when we go to sleep, we get the slow wave activity in, in each side of our brain. And, and, and so sleep can, one of the things that for brain activity to sleep is you see more slow wave activity, and that means that part of your brain's gone to sleep. 
Well, as it turns out, on that first night when we're accustomed to a, a new area, where we're not accustomed to it, you're actually, your left part of your brain doesn't really go to sleep as much as your right. Hmm. So the, 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 the old phrase, sleep with one eye open, mm. it's kind of true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and this is, um, but they actually show that, and they did this test where they, they, they had people sleep and then they cooked to, uh, one week, week apart. They monitored them in a new environment and when it was less new. And they actually saw that the slow wave activity synced up over the longer they were in that area, in, in, the, in that new new environment. And, and you get better sleep when the slow wave activity syncs up in the left and right hand parts of your brain. Now, what was really interesting was they're not quite sure why, but they did notice that the left hand side of the brain has more connectivity between its different constituent regions. Hmm. And they're thinking, well, that's probably, if you're gonna have a part of your, a left, which side of your brain would be a better night watchman, it's probably the left side of your brain. And, and they're still going, well, exactly why this is happening is kind of interesting and they're unsure. But we do know other mammals go to a much more extreme on this, where dolphins are actually able, they sleep, they put one half of their brain to sleep at a time. Oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, just, uh, just always. Yeah, that's actually how they sleep, is half of their oh. brain goes to sleep at a time, and that's so they can still be alert. And there are actually some mammals that have a much more extreme version of this, obviously, because of the environments they live in. And, and so... What we're left with is this alertness when we're in a new environment. And if you think from an evolutionary standpoint, there's arguments to say, well, when the environment was in a comfortable hotel room, there's probably some safety in in, in, in having that skill of being mm. able to sleep a little lighter. Mm. Interesting. I've always uh, tried to offset that, what's it called, first night syndrome, with yeah. a little bit of uh, jungle juice. You know, <laughs> we're not being at conferences. Not, you know, uh, don't encourage that. A bit but, of biochemical uh, assistance. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes it just helps you relax. You know, it's um, yeah. something to. Now, uh, I, I've actually, I had some news this week that I was going to bring in, but I've dumped it because we got a great email. Um, not that international science news is important, but we got a great email from um, someone local during the week. About uh, two and a half, almost three years ago, uh, Dr. Lauren and I heard from a young um, primary school student here in Melbourne. Um, his name is Kay, or Kai, Kai Nielsen. And he was working on a project on the Bionic Eye and he was hoping to get some advice and some information. And Dr. Lauren, of course, is part of the Bionic Eye team. And she was, you know, very helpful. And, and he put a poster together and did really well with this poster. Then, you, that's the best insight into your primary school project, Isn't right? that cool, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, you, you, you need help with, uh, you know, a project. And so you actually talk to the best researchers pretty much in the world doing this, which is, is kind of cool. Just dial a scientist. And, and you know, doc, Dr. Lauren, you know, she's humble, but she works with people from, from Harvard and so forth. I mean, she's not no small fish in the in the pond here. So anyway, uh, so we, we did that. And then we were lucky enough when we did one of the synchrotron outside broadcasts to actually meet Kai. He came to have a look at the synchrotron with his parents and we were pretty excited about that. And we had a look and, um, at what he was doing. And, you know, we saw, you know, he's done so well. And it was great to, to have a quick chat while, you know, between breaks in the show and so forth. He then started entering in um, some of the Lego robotics uh, stuff and did really well with oh, that. Those are great competitions. Yeah, these competitions. And since then, and this is this is what he was updating us on the other day. And so, you know, we were pretty excited to receive this. Um, there's a thing called the First Lego League, um, which is a competition. And um, his his school, Glendale Primary School, he's in grade five now. They competed at. Um, 
Swinburne University and in order to get into this national um, sort of round of the competition. And they did exceptionally well and they came third out of 49 other teams when they went into the national competition. Now, I should say... Australia. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I should say, when they, when they went through to Swinburne University, um, I think they, they came runner-up or second or something, and, and so they didn't get through. And then they got drawn in on a wild card. So they had a wild card offer and they got this call. And, and Kai tells this story of how, you know, every night between 3.30pm and 8.30pm um, and some, some weekends, they'd basically be working on those robotics. I mean, this is something that's really inspiring kids to, to do some good stuff. Anyway, so then in the national competition, they, they came third out of 49 other teams um, around Australia. And they have this... Um, they have it's a, there's a very strong environmental message to what they're doing. So it's all about um, removal of waste and so forth. So it's not just about um, you know building robots to run around and kick soccer balls or things like that. This is about using them to remove waste and do other things. It's pretty it's pretty specific and pretty um, pretty interesting and relevant. So they're, they're actually trying to solve a real world problem that will yeah, have impact. Exactly. And so the, the email that we got during the week, which is what excited us all so much at Triple R here, was that um, they've actually because they've done so. Well, well and come third, they're actually now heading off um, to be in the, the Open European Championship of this same competition. Ah, uh, woo! In Spain. Represent. Which is uh, which nice. is super amazing. So there's um, there's apparently 89 teams that are going to be competing in this um, from 70 different countries, and it's a, basically a three-day competition, you know, with sort of robotics and, and so forth. And they have a um, they have a campaign or a, a promo slogan that they've put out, which I absolutely love. And we'll put it on our, our website later. It's our future. Don't waste it. Oh, which is, uh, I get it. Which is I cool. get it. Um, so, folks, if you get a chance, and this is a big shout out for um, the, the the kids out there from Glendale Primary School, and for everyone listening, um, there. If you search iBots Australia, so iBots Australia, you'll find their their website and their Facebook site and so forth. So, if you can like that and give them the support, they will be representing our country uh, later. I think it's in May, um, and uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. So. Sometimes, every now and then, you know, someone listens to our show and gets a little bit of inspiration and then uses their own natural talent and, and local support from their school and does something great. So that made us pretty um, pretty happy to hear about all that. So I well done, Kai and team, and um, we hope you do well in Spain. I think that's one of the brilliant things about Triple R as a community radio station is that we love hearing from our listeners. Yeah, and we, we don't very often, and, we, and you don't need to ring us up all the time and say <laughs> say things that are nice or bad or otherwise. You can say the bad things because that's good, we can improve. But when we do hear a story about this, and given Lauren and I met Kai and, and we were so excited about how well he'd done, it was just absolutely spectacular to hear that he's heading off to Spain to represent our country. So um, keep up the good work. We'll, um, we'll let you know how it goes once we, we find out. I have no doubt that he will let us know. Three, triple E. You're listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We have a couple of guests in the studio. We have Gregory Crocetti and Bryony Barr, who are involved in a graphic novel. I have to say, folks, first of all, welcome. Great to have you Thank in here. You. Thanks for having us. We've never had anyone who's been involved in a graphic novel in the studio before, so this is, you know, we're cutting some some really new grass here. Um, I love a graphic novel. I, I was telling you out in the green room that I saw one performed recently, which was just wild. Um, now, this is about um, an Australian nurse's heroic battle against death, dysentery and disease in World War I France. First of all, um, I might start with you, um, Greg. What's what, what sort of drew you to do this? I mean, what... 
get you out of bed in the morning and says, I'm going to do a graphic novel. Well, it's part of a larger series of books which uh, are directed at primarily at children about telling positive stories about microbes. Mm-hmm. We started with two stories about bacteria uh, in different animals uh, and some amazing research came out a couple of years ago uh, by an Australian microbiologist, Jeremy Barr, uh, at San Diego State Uni about the symbiotic role of viruses, a type of virus called bacteriophage viruses, that live in the mucus of animals and it very much his research pointed to a, an amazing symbiotic relationship between these bacteriophage these viruses and and animals through mucus okay. and we thought well bacteriophage the discovery of that the centenary discovery of that's happening right now because uh, that was 1917 roughly uh which lines up beautifully with world war one so we thought let's make a graphic novel that that has both of those elements together. And, and just for our listeners who may not be aware of this form, because these are something that are around, they were, they were everywhere long ago, but we don't see them as much now. I mean, how, how do you define a graphic novel compared to a normal novel? It's full of pictures. It, it, shows, <laughs> um, graphics. it shows more, more so than, than just telling. Um, yep. And, um, I mean... It, I guess making it was kind of like um, visualising a whole film because, I mean, for every mm. statement, uh, you have to visualise that scene yep. and you have to tell the story through the pictures, as, you know, which is supported by the dialogue. So it's a really uh, visual way of storytelling. Mm. Um, and, and in that, I mean, there's, a, there's an extraordinary amount of artwork that, that's not in normal novels, I assume. Who, who did that? Who did so the... Ben Hutchings was our, yep. our artist. Um, he uh, runs Squishface Studio, which is in Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he did an amazing job. I mean, he's background is not in science um, but uh, working from the storyboards that Gregory and I created um, and you know we worked with Jeremy Barr to, to create that he was able to visualize you know each each frame um, to end up being about 64 pages of, yeah. of imagery and, and the storyboards are built on the story the script written by Elsa Wilde yeah. who mm. is our uh, a writing partner in this series yeah. Yeah. So it's a big collaboration a, a bit of a, a multi symbiosis if you will yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's 60 pages is that the number of images or do you have some pages where there is multiple that's the number of um, pages tiles? So on each page there's maybe five or six frames right um, so we're, we're talking several sizes. hundred different images to absolutely tell yeah. yeah when we yeah. did our first two books they were picture books and they had uh, there's about 20 images in each so storyboarding 20 images was a big job mm. for those two books we didn't realize what we were signing up for with the graphic novel <laughs> <Yeah>. 300 <laughs> really odd images that yeah. amount of storyboarding, yeah, for the first two books it took us about a uh, fortnight. <coughs> for this it took us about three months. Mm. Now, in, in this this story, The Invisible War, h- how much science is, is in there? I mean, the, the real question for us is always, you know, is this an educational book or is it just a book for fun? Do I come out with the same knowledge I went in with or do I come out thinking, geez, I've actually learned quite a bit in this process? I, I, I promise you will learn a lot about yourself and your the, the microbes <laughs> in your gut i mean the yeah. the, the science we, about the microbiome uh, the human microbiome is just exploding before mm, our very eyes yeah, every every week i get you know digest of uh pardon the pun of uh you know 20 or 30 new papers some of which are just have some something phenomenal in them uh and so we we tried to and this was my job as sort of the science director of the series uh and this story was to try and get my head around as much as i could and meet with some of the gurus like rob knight and some of the experts on shigella and bacteriophages and things like that which feature in our story uh and it's yeah it's mind-boggling how much science there is now Mm. around the microbiome Mm. 
So uh, going back to the, the graphical aspects of this, um, more and more we're seeing scientists are often asked to come up with graphical representations of, of their discoveries. For example, on uh, the very high-end journals like Science and Nature, the front covers now are really artistic drawings of scientific schematics. And, and there's certainly a, a level of dramatic license that scientists are starting to take. And I was just curious, how did you, how do you define that filter in your storyboarding process to say, well, what communicates versus what looks good artistically? I mean, you had a little flyer that you showed us about the Invisible War, and, and just the backdrop, um, I mean, it's just amazing. I, I don't want to describe it or give it away because people really should go to the website and download the book, but, but oh my goodness, how did you, how did you come up with, uh, this has a motif of, of, of probably a World War I promotion poster as well. How do you balance that storyboarding and the, the scientifics with still making it look attractive, interesting, and, and then balance that with your own artistic inspiration? Wow, that's a good question. I think, um, yeah, scientists um, can definitely make use of um, beautiful images to communicate what they're doing, and and I think perhaps that's a way forward um, for the collaboration of, of art and science. Um, and I think uh, science can be communicated better through, through imagery, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we tend to think of scientific imagery as, you know, dry or boring or graphs or, you know, things like that. But, but I think, um, you know, the, I mean, I'm an artist and, and science is an amazing inspiration for me. Um, and well, it's the world, isn't it? I mean, so it's nature. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the world. It's science yeah. is all around us. Yeah, there's, there's no distinction. There's an amazing thing that, you know, that, that when you go, when you work with an artist to render uh, a scientific concept, you actually get to do more than any one scientific image can do. Because when you think about, let's just take a simple compound microscope, the depth of field is so narrow, so 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 shallow, that you can only ever see one slice of an object, one slice of, of you know, of, of the trenches of your gut wall. Uh, when you go to draw that, you get to shade in all of the depths and the layers and, and add in things that would have otherwise been lost. So you get to bring together so many other parts of, of the science uh, that that no one scientific image could do, a, a micrograph couldn't mm, do, mm. but you but an illustrator can do. So it's actually quite magical how much you can you can load in there as accurately as possible. Mm. So working at this fabulous interface of art and science, I mean, we often talk about the different languages people speak in their professional practices. Did anything surprise you when you were working, you know, with, you know, straddling those worlds of art and science between, you know, the ways in which, you know, people talk to each other or communicate ideas? Have you got any examples of, of that mashup? Um... Um, I mean, I think everybody wore lots of hats during the process. Like, I mean, some, you know, Jeremy, our, our main scientific consultant, um, you know, he had to really think more poetically about his research. Um, you know, I remember we were talking about um, trying to really early on about how to characterise um, the, the viruses, our main characters. And, you know, I said to him, what would be their personality? I mean, the, you know, he knows them so well, but, you know, as a scientist. And, you know, how would you characterise their voice you know how would they speak um, and he he spoke about um, them or seeing them like the Borg on um, Star, Star Trek. Trek yeah where they're sort of legion you know they're they're one in the many and uh, and that and he he felt that they should speak in this sort of pluralistic kind of way um, yeah, and we. so yeah so, mm. and we we really worked with that and then also worked with that and then and then we decided to take that further and make them um, speak in a kind of rhyme as well so yeah that was um, so 
yeah, we had to um, think, yeah, we helped each other, I guess, to think um, yeah, differently about the, the subject matter. It, it's, I've got to say, from, from being from the more scientific end of the, of the collaboration, it's really quite frustrating for me at times to, uh, because both Ben and Elsa have really no background in science. Elsa's, you know, very happy to say, our writer is very uh, happy to say, I, I finished learning science at well, year I. 10. <laughs> Well, you did year 11 and 12 biology. But, uh, and, yeah, and I tell you a lot of stuff all the time, but uh, um, I read papers to her sometimes. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's an amazing thing about ha- being forced to communicate uh, and explain science to, to lay people all the time that is both frustrating and rewarding. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, which I'm sure you guys are well aware of, that uh, it's just constantly happening in that creative process. Mm. Well, look, we love it. That's, um, that's why we're here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I, I have to, you know, bravo on your, um, your your title too. I mean, The Invisible War, A Tale of Two Scales. I mean, the Dickens aspect of that I just love. <laughs> it's so well put together. Um, it's So how do people grab it? It's it's online. It's free online? Um, for teachers, for, for teachers? Australian yep. teachers, it's free uh, via uh, Scoodle, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a well-known website for for teachers yep. um, through we're actually doing a crowdfunding campaign yeah. at the moment to create a print edition um, so we're, if people go to theinvisiblewar.com.au it'll take um, them to our possible site so uh, as well as there'll be both links there the possible and the scooter links are there on that page excellent yeah. 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 well guys uh, well done on putting this together I think uh, there should be more of these graphic novels I think they're, they're, they're an art form that people forget are there and they're actually really um, when, you, when you look through them they're, they're a great pleasure to read than to look at because you have both the visuals and the and the storyline. You can get a lot more detail in, I think, mm. than, than some other forms. Absolutely. So, um, well done. Uh, good luck. I hope it goes well. And um, if you're listening, folks, and you want to support the um, the crowdfunding so that we can get a physical copy of this, if that turns you on, um, otherwise um, go to the website and check it out. It's called The Invisible War. Bryony and Greg, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's a science program called Einstein and Go-Go. If we haven't met before, I'm Dr Shane. In the studio now, though, we have a couple of guests. We have Chris McCormick and Kathy Cav... Cavallo, Kathy, have I got it right? You've been on the show before, I should know. Yeah, that's it, Cavallo. Cavallo. Um, now, you guys are here to talk about Wild Melbourne, and we're not talking about the streets after dark, folks. We're talking about the environmental program. Chris, I might start with you. Um, the idea here is presumably to enhance sort of um, our knowledge of our, our, our local environment and, and, and what's around us. Is that right? Is that yeah, abs- absolutely. And I, I guess to some extent that can involve the streets after dark, depending on what <laughs> yeah. uh, animals we're talking about. Um, yeah, so Wild Melbourne is, I guess, our focus is Victoria-wide and, and really it's all about connecting people with nature and, mm-hmm. and using science as a tool for education. Um, and our aim being sort of a long-term thing here where we sort of enhance the understanding within our community here in Melbourne and Victoria and hope that that leads to a, a greater appreciation of our biodiversity and our environment. Mm. Um, um, what are you finding? I mean, when, when you start doing that, I'm going to ask you how you do it in a moment, but but what, what do you find in terms of people's attitudes? Is it sort of like I'm surrounded? by concrete so you know it doesn't really bother me i mean you, you know I was, I was hearing this story recently about um uh, from a colleague from holland and he was saying one of his friends gets it 
gets in from his apartment, you know, gets in the lift, goes downstairs into his car, which is in the garage, you know, drives to the car park at work. There's a tunnel, you know, takes him up into his workplace. There's another tunnel that he can go to a local shopping precinct. He said he can literally not see the sun for a month and it doesn't really affect, you know, his day-to-day. I mean, I mean, is that what you're seeing when you interact with people in this stuff? It's, it's not necessarily what I'm seeing, but I, I think you speak to a, a really a broader issue there, which is that the natural world has kind of been removed from the relevance of our day-to-day lives. Mm. And obviously that, that varies from person to person, whether you're living, you know, in the outer suburbs or in the country or if you're living in the city and what you do for a living and what you do day-to-day. Um, but, you know, it's surprising when you do talk to people about these things, they, they know of a, a spot somewhere where they go or, right. or they know of the biodiversity in their backyard or they talk about the tawny frogmouth that comes and sits on their fence every night, that kind of thing. You know, people have these really one-on-one sort of personal connections with, with nature in their lives. So you can see how nature will find relevance if, you know, people open their eyes to it. Mm. Now, tell us about Wild Melbourne. I mean, what exactly do you guys do in terms of sort of upscaling this connection with nature that people have and their knowledge of it? Yes, yeah, so I mean, it's quite broad. I guess we, we kind of start with, with, with the concept we want to connect people to nature and then we're going to do that however we can. So we do on-the-ground community projects. We've done some work down at Point Leo where we've done interpretive um, board design to, to enhance visitor engagement. We've, we've got uh, a rock pool sort of uh, rock table down there and a touch table for kids to learn about things they'll find out there before they go out on the beach or into the bush. Um, and we've done a beautiful mural down there as well which, which local kids came and helped out with and, and they learnt about the animals and the landscape while they were painting that. So that was very um, community involved. We also publish articles online. That's kind of been mm-hmm. the bread and butter of what we do. And we, we do um, publish guest articles as well. So we take con- contributions from scientists and from people in the community as well, um, all about um, nature, uh, whether it be science, art, um, you know, a, a place they like to go, anything like that that kind of enhances the profile of the natural mm. environment. Um, and our understanding of it. And we, we do production, so we're working on a documentary film and we're also partnered with other organisations like Conservation Volunteers Australia, Fauna Research Alliance, um, in, in promoting their stories and telling their stories about uh, how, how they're doing great work in the environment. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great to hear about some of these. I mean, Cathy, I want, I want to turn to you because, I mean, I think some of the, some of the problems here are where we invest our, our resources. I mean, I know right near my house is the, um, the Organ Pipes National Park and and I go down, it's one of the most extraordinary geological formations that, you know, is exposed, you know, you can, I'm sure if you dig around you find the exact same thing in many places around that area, but this is an exposed geological formation that's incredibly educational. And I have to say, the lack of investment in that site is just pitiful from state government it just makes me sick and it's 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 a place where so few people go because there's nothing there and i bumped into a mum there recently and she said oh if only there was a coffee shop i'm thinking you know sadly it's come to that Uh, i mean it's what what are we doing in this regard with some of these locations it just doesn't seem as though we're doing enough to get people there and keep them there I think, I mean, with the organ pipes, I only went there for the first time last year, even though it's, what, half an hour out of the city or something. It's right nearby. And so I think, like, there's a lot of trouble with actually getting the money to kit out these parks and places like that. Mm. And so we work with, um, like, private groups that want to spend their money to bring people into their areas to see Mm. local parks and things like that. And I think a a really big part of what we do with our website um, that I love is the bush beats and splash spots section. Right. And it basically means that 
all of our committee members and all our writers have an obligation every time that we go for a walk or a swim that we should review it and put up, you know, how to get there, what kind of things you're going to see. And we get... I think maybe that might be some of the best response that we get on the Facebook and Twitter is people engaging with those posts like, mm. oh, Jess, let's go down here for the weekend, you know, and they're not necessarily friends of ours. That's when we see the wider community getting involved and that's really exciting. For I, me. I think that too for you guys. I mean, that's the difference between the marketing you get hit with, which frankly you believe, you know, maybe 10% off. Um, you know, like I think last week we were talking about this magical water that someone was selling. It was kind of weird. Um, and and that real sort of scenario you get from locals who say, you know, I took my kids there and they loved it and this is why. And and no, if it's, you know, kids below three, you shouldn't go. Or what, you know, you get that, that greater level. Is that the sort of stuff you're putting Putting yeah, on for people. definitely yeah. trying to work out who it's um, who it's appropriate for. I mean, all of these places can be experienced by anyone, mm. you know, within within reason. Anyway, I went up to the Grampians the other day, and some of those trails are so wild and yeah. rambly. But there were little kids and big families and things on these trails, and people people just need to get out there. The moment that you're in that environment, it's so exciting. It's yeah. so much fun. When we were at the Grampians. All like a lot of people might say because we didn't see any animals because the track was full. It was a middle right. day. Yep. But there are these insane rocks, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> incredible geological features. And just, you know, having the Grampians three hours out of Melbourne or the organ pipes half mm. an hour out of mm. Melbourne. Yeah. Um, place, places like Trentham, I'm mm-hmm. sure you guys have been to Trentham Falls. And, you know, again, another another location where there's no investment, there's no yep. path down to the falls. But try and stop an eight-year-old from getting down there. I've tried. It's not possible. You know, you're going down this cliff face to try and get there. And I thought, geez, you know, we were brave going down there. And I saw this guy carrying a baby. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. But there's so much to, you know, you can't stop people going out and having fun when they see that. It's great. And even just in our backyards, I mean, one of the big focuses for us is the disconnect that city people mm. have with the environment. And... It's not necessarily something that they they can't they don't want to change, but they mm. just can't have the time to get out. And so people that are living in the suburbs, like for us, we always get excited about the spine bills and, and fairy wrens and things that are yep. just in our backyards. Yeah. And even people in the city, like right in the CBD, if they have their eyes to the sky, they might see the peregrines that nest on top of one of the Collin Street buildings. Mm. Or mm. they can pop into the to the lobby and see the video during, you know, they've got a live feed of yeah. them in the, in the breeding season. Yeah. So you, you just can look anywhere for this kind of exciting stuff. It's just that I think people are disconnected with knowing what, where to look and that's where we feel the... Yeah. So, so, Chris, is there any sort of big stuff coming up that you guys are, are planning that uh, people should be aware of? Do you want to tell people while we're still in there? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose one of the most exciting things that's happened recently for us is, is a partnership with Fauna Research Alliance and Conservation Volunteers Australia. And they've bought some property, they've had it for about two years, up in the Little Desert, which is a fairly unknown sort of far-off reach of Victoria. It's sort of northwest of the Grampians, not mm-hmm. quite to Mildura. Yep. Um, and it's this patch of Mallee region. And they've bought some property there, and the plan is that they're going to rewild it. So they're going to reintroduce mammals um, and, and some bird species that have been lost from, from there for 150 to 200 years um, since, since the impacts of, of European settlement. Um, and that's a really wonderful story. So we wanna, we're involved with mm. that from the ground up in telling that story, um, promoting that to the community, because it's a fairly far-flung place. People barely know it exists. And if we can tell that story effectively and get the community here in Melbourne and elsewhere in Victoria to take ownership of that, then maybe that'll lead to some really positive changes um, elsewhere. Yeah. And, and maybe that'll mean that on-the-ground conservation work, you know, has a broader impact. Yeah. 
Indeed. Look, sounds great. I uh, suppose people um, look up Wild Melbourne, they'll find uh, your website and Facebook site pretty easily. Uh, Chris and Cathy, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It sounds like a great project, a lot of fun, and uh, keep it up. Thanks for having us. Three. Triple. In the studio, we have Associate Professor Sof Andrikopoulos, is that right? Sof, do they get it in vaguely close? Andrikopoulos, that's correct. There we go. Uh, he's an NHMRC Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Medicine at the University of Melbourne and Austin Hospital. Sof, you work in the area of type 2 diabetes, and let's start with the bare bones definition. Type 2 versus type 1. What's so I can tell you what type 2, the differences are, and the differences are that in type 1 diabetes we have an absolute deficiency of insulin. So your mm. pancreas does not produce any insulin and your blood sugar levels rise for that reason. In type 2 diabetes we have a deficiency of insulin but it's relative. You do have some insulin being produced and released but it's not enough to correct your blood sugar levels. Both type 1 and type 2 are defects of insulin secretion. Mm. One relative, one absolute. Okay. Now, type 2 diabetes is something we hear about people developing in life. They, they, they get it as a result, I presume, partly maybe genetics or, or diet. I mean, how, how does right. your body suddenly get to the point where it says, you know what, you know, you've been pushing things too hard for too long, I can't cope anymore. What, what happens? So, so I think what happens is that uh, overweight, uh, nutrient, uh, energy-dense uh, food intake, uh, lack of exercise, all push the pancreas to secrete, to try and secrete mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. a lot of insulin to cope with that uh, stress. And for whatever reason, and uh, my belief, it's a genetic predisposition, uh, you uh, can't cope. That genetic predisposition is revealed by the environment of high sugar, high mm. fat, uh, high uh, uh, sedentary lifestyle, and you get diabetes because your pancreas can't cope. Mm. cope. It, it's, it's interesting to me when we, when we hear that. I mean, obviously it, it comes out, you know, we, as you see, I think the term revealed is quite, quite good. Um, why doesn't it go back? If I, if I have type 2 diabetes and I say, you know what, I'm transforming my life, I'm going to eat healthy, I'm going to run every day, I'm going to have, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, you've come in having done that yourself. Um, you know, why, why can't I wind it back? It seems as though it's a one-way deal once you open that door. Look, I think you can't correct your, sorry, I, I uh, will backtrack. We are not at the level of understanding the disease process where we can correct the genetic defect. Mm-hmm. So if you're overweight and you're sedentary, you will rele- reveal the genetic defect and you'll get type 2 diabetes. If you lose weight and you become more active, you can control your blood glucose levels very effectively. And there's plenty of studies to show that. Hmm, okay. uh, lots of studies. The Diabetes Prevention Program, the Da Ching study from China, the uh, Finnish uh, Diabetes Study from, from Europe all have shown that you can prevent the progression to type 2 diabetes by intensive lifestyle therapy. You still have the genetic defect. Hmm, yeah. So if you relapse, then you're going to get diabetes again. Hmm. Now, one of the things I find curious about, my father has type 2 diabetes, so you know, know a reasonable amount about it, is it seems to me the way we treat it at the moment is a little weird, as in, you know, we, we just give these, uh, we test our, our sort of blood sugar levels as the day go, goes by, but we give a standardised dose, dose of insulin each day, which doesn't seem to vary that much. So unlike our pancreas, which is sort of going to be responding in real time to need, we just say, well, we're going to ignore need almost entirely 
entirely and just take on this drug in a regular sort of way. I mean, is that why, why aren't we doing trying to mimic the pancreas more closely? Uh, because we can't. Right. Uh, the pancreas secretes insulin in a pulsatile manner, so mm. it secretes in waves, and uh, the um, technology that we have at the moment cannot recapitulate that uh, uh, pulsatile secretory response that the pancreas has. Our pumps secrete our insulin pumps secrete insulin in a square wave manner, so. You know, you're either going to get a bolus of uh, insulin just before you ha have a meal, mm -hmm. a spike, or you're going to have a continuous infusion during uh, during the day. We're not at the level where we can actually mimic the pancreas. Mm. So, so what's required to get there, or are we, or should we be looking at a different way of treating type two diabetes? I think uh, type two diabetes can be well managed be, by uh, lifestyle intervention, diet, and exercise, as well as pharmacotherapy. There's enough, as I said, there's enough studies that uh, show that uh, we can you know, effectively manage uh, the disease process with intensive lifestyle therapy uh, as well as some of the drugs that we have at the mm -hmm. moment. So there's there's quite a lot of um, uh, press around type two diabetes, and there's quite a lot of fad uh, kind of diets, or you know, I cured my diabetes by drinking lemon juice kinds of uh, kinds of approaches, which are probably not endorsed by a strong evidence base. So so what is the science telling us about the best way forward? And and if we do have strong evidence for that, you know, intense lifestyle intervention, why isn't it being adopted in the same way that popular fad diets are being embraced? Uh, look, uh, my my um, uh, viewpoint about uh, diets and, and the dietary uh, recommendations that occur uh, from all sorts of sources, uh, whether they're credible or not, are you know it's uh, the eight-week blood sugar diet or the twelve-week body weight transformation mm. diet. We have to remember, obesity type two diabetes is not an eight-week, mm. twelve-week program. Long term. It's a lifelong disease. So, yes, you can lose weight in eight weeks or 12 weeks if you limit the amount of food, the amount of calories that you take in. But then what? How do you then maintain that mm. uh, loss of weight for the long term? So my issue is not whether a particular diet works. My issue is once you lose that weight, then what? Then how do you maintain mm. uh, the weight loss for the long term? Uh, we have extremely good evidence that uh, weight maintenance, weight loss maintenance, can improve your uh, outcomes of your diabetes. Hmm. Now, 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 so I mean, f f putting aside the the sort of food stuff in the moment, you know, and all of that, because I think behaviour is one thing, but you've also been looking on the the actual reasons why the secretion of of insulin is reduced. I mean, tell us a bit about that work, because that that's it seems as though if we could work that out, you know, not that we want people to have bad diets and bad, but but you know, as you say, some people have a disposition towards this. Some people can't get out of it, or no matter how much they want to behave well after after this has occurred it's it's still going to be a problem for their life how do we go about sort of learning more about insulin and how it's actually produced yeah and i think that that's the yeah the 24 bazillion dollar question uh trying to find genes that uh, cause beta cell dysfunction type 2 diabetes a bunch of studies have been done over the years genome-wide association studies uh, in humans in particular animal models uh, to try and find genes we found uh, maybe uh, you know i don't know how many 10 20 30 genes that are associated with beta cell dysfunction type 2 diabetes which can uh, explain about 10% of the heritability of the disease. Mm -hmm. In other words, the disease is a complex dis the, the, the yep. disease. And what's going to give the, the five or 10 genes that will 
genetic mutations that will give me diabetes will be different to the five or ten genes that will give crystal diabetes. Yeah, right. So mm. it's it's trying to understand. So so in other words, we need to individualize not only the uh, not only the uh, cause of the disorder, but also the management of the disorder to that person. Personalized medicine, individualized care is the way I think that we can move forward. Our work has been using animal models either genetically modified or naturally occurring to find genes. We have found uh, you know, two or three genes in the last uh, uh, 10 years that we can see affect insulin secretion. One of those genes, the potassium channel has also been found in patients with type 2 diabetes. Whether that gene can then be targeted in a particular way to improve secretion well only time will tell mm. and so what is next in that i mean you, you've nailed, nailed down a couple of these genes i mean right. what's the next stage in the research to follow this up so so for us what we're doing next because these are already known genes and already targetable genes uh in in uh, uh diabetes we are using at the moment a very powerful genetic resource co- called the collaborative cross which is a mix of eight different strains of animals and then uh, producing thousands of lines of mice which have been genetically uh, um, uh, genetically characterized and then we're looking at their phenotype to try and pull out genes and I think we're a little bit closer to finding novel genes that affect insulin secretion. Mm. Look it's it's really interesting and it's one of those things that um, the amount of money that goes into into this area in health also in the marketing of various foods and you know all of this sort of stuff and replacement sugar companies all, all this stuff is extraordinary i mean if we actually can crack this one it's a, it's a big deal for countries especially western countries look i can tell you that uh in australia there's 1.7 million people with diabetes mm. i just came from a um a, uh, a conference from china and in china they've got 105 million 105 million people with diabetes mm. at the moment yeah it's huge it's a big deal so thanks so much for talking to us today good luck with the work we hope it continues and uh, hopefully we'll have a better understanding of insulin as we we go into the future thank you very much thank you associate professor soft andrew Coppolis is nhmrc senior research fellow in the department of medicine at the university of melbourne and austin hospital we're almost out of time i'm afraid we're going to have to palm you off to the team from edith in a moment dr crystal you're waving at me oh i just feel really inspired about the future of diabetes not only um diagnosis but treatment i'm imagining a future state in which you can go in and have your personal genome sequence to tell you not only what you're susceptible to but how you personally can um, yeah. can respond to it I just think the power in genomics at the moment and genomic medicine where it's only just the Potential. beginning but you know it's been what 15 years since the human genome was yeah. sequenced and yeah. I think now now we are actually really starting to reap the benefits of that yeah. so I'm pretty excited about the future well, of medicine and I think I think that you know if you add uh, the microbiome you add our immune system and its use in fighting cancer and this stuff together it's going to be a pretty exciting decade ahead and hopefully we'll see you know we're already seeing some of the the, the benefits we're absolutely of this, but, starting to realize but, the know, benefits this now. will be um cool stuff so while we're destroying the environment we're curing uh, diseases <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could get it all right in the one go uh thanks so much dr crystal we'll see you again soon dr ray dr shane it was fun and uh, liv's been pushing our twitter feed buttons uh at a prolific rate i can hear her tweeting over there um she had a couple of weeks off she had to go on some camp i don't know
sound dodgy to me. I think she was just out drinking. But, you know, she's half half my age, so I can't complain. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Uh, remember, folks, science is everywhere. We'll talk to you again next week. We're doing a special gender, gender show next week. It'll be pretty cool. And we'll be handing out some tickets to go and see Gene soon and live in Melbourne at the end of May. So listen in next week. Until then, thanks for tuning in, and we'll chat to you very, very soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.